0: Let's pray. Gracious Father, we come to you this morning to confess that we are prone to wander. We are uh, in the midst of a falling world that is sometimes so alluring to us. And our sin is so easy to uh, excuse and justify. We still struggle with sin. In all our frailties and all our weakness, we come to confess our great need for you. We come because you've instructed us that it is good for us. in the reality of where we are, this side of glory, we confess before you, but we confess with hearts, longing to know you more fully, longing to walk in righteousness, longing to be strengthened and encouraged, and built up by you, our great God. May you fill us, Strengthen us and fortify us for the battle that is ahead of us, uh, awaiting our eternal hope and glory. May you um, use us for your good pleasure and give us strength that we might be faithful soldiers of the cross. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we return to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 18, the title of this morning's message is Paul encouraged in Corinth. We'll be looking at the first 11 verses there and we've tackled them in one regard um, prior that being a little look into uh, the presence of Christ in our evangelism. But here I want to kind of take the larger context and uh, hone in on the reality of Paul being encouraged and how God has incur- encourages him uniquely there in Corinth at that particular context of his life. So, if you will look with there, look with me there, and we'll read through the first eleven verses. After these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he came to them, and because he was of the same trade he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers, and he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath, trying to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then he left there and went to the house of a man named uh, T- Titius Justus a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul in a night vision, do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no man will attack you in order to harm you. For I have many people in this city. And he settled there for a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Now, if you recall, um, Paul, as he has now traveled to the province of Achaia, he's moved out of Macedonia. And there in Macedonia, uh, he was chased out of every city that he entered into. He comes to Philippi. uh, He sees the marvelous work of God there. And. He's chased out of town. That's that's Anika. Same thing. He's chased out of town. He gets uh, he's he's um, physically uh, uh, beaten. He has he's been stoned. He's been beaten. Um, he's been abused physically in a number of ways. He gets to Berea, and there he finds uh, a, a more noble lot. There's not uh, there's no violence exercised towards him. But it's not long. Until the Jewish leaders from Thessalonica chase him down to Berea. And he's chased out of town. They have to take him away. And eventually he finds himself in Athens all alone. So Timothy Timothy and and, uh, Silas are still working in Macedonia. Remember, Paul's left back. Excuse me, uh, uh, Luke is left back in Philippi. So he finds himself alone in Athens. And he's not physically abused in Athens, but there's a little response. Certainly, he's glory. He gives God glory for all the response that has been to the gospel along the way. But it has been brutal. It has been hostile. And where there have been a great, where there's been a great movement of God, great response, has been followed by persecution immediately. And then he hits Athens. He's a long, He's a little discouraged, and there's just not much there. We don't see a church form there. And then we find him now moving from Athens into Corinth. This is certainly, Corinth was certainly not on the map for him in terms of his missionary endeavors initially. But the providence of God has driven him this way, this far south uh, into Europe. And now he finds himself there in Corinth. Then if um, Athens was the intellectual hub of the day, Uh, Corinth is the immoral hub of the day. It's a very wicked place. And now, if you will, he's in a cesspool of immorality. He's hurting, he's discouraged, and he's frightened. And in Corinth, he will later say in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 3, writing back to the Corinthians, he'll later say that when he was there, he was in there in weakness and much fear and trembling. So it wasn't on his radar, but it was certainly on God's radar for him. And Corinth, became, Corinth really became the prominent place through which the gospel threat was spread throughout the New Testament there. Uh, and, and where Paul would write, he would write to the to, to Thessalonians there, he would write Romans there. And again, he would write back. We, got, we have First uh, and Second Corinthians writing back to these people. So much of what we find in the New Testament has to do with Corinth and much of the spread of the gospel. Really took place now as Paul had settled in what we now know in Corinth, there for a year and six months. But the place was a debauched place. It was um, a prosperous center of commerce, situated on the isthmus there of Corinth, commanding a land route between uh, Greece and Peloponnese. So it had two ports on each side, east and west ports, made it a, a very much a, a very wealthy place of commerce, and it had a north, a north south land route so it was a wealthy place due to the geographical location due to the commerce that came as a result of that and the people enjoyed great prosperity and certainly this great prosperity helped facilitate a luxurious lifestyle and in and indulge in an immoral, an immoral lifestyle. And that was what characterized Corinth. It was known, it had that reputation of being a place of much immorality. It was a well-earned reputation for, it was a result of, of an embracing of a lifestyle of sexual laxity. And we look back and we think about Corinth, that's why. So often when Paul writes his letters to the Corinthians, so often he warns against sexual sin in these letters because the place was awash with this reality. And the Christians there, the church there, had great struggles with that kind of sin. And again, a perverse culture is a culture with which Christians must be on guard against the sins that are pervasive and that culture. So we find him in Corinth. We find him in this immoral place. And he's there, beaten down, frightened, discouraged. Not really certain about, he's concerned about the church plants that he's left behind in Macedonia. Not sure of their footing, spiritually speaking. Not sure that they're grounded well enough. And so much so in Thessalonica that he sends Uh, his his co-workers back to work with them because he fears that they will leave the faith. And he's certain that the same kind of persecution that came his way will reemerge in these areas. And so he's fearful for the well-being of these churches. He's concerned about them. So all this is weighing heavy on his mind as he enters into Corinth. And he's kind of, he's, at that place, mentally, physically, emotionally, where he's just about spent, and he finds him play, he finds his play himself now, and this immoral cesspool. So he's he's had about all he can all he can stand, and then he's by himself in court. So he's hurting, and that brings us to the kind providence there in verses one through four. So look there with me. So after he left Athens, there he goes and he comes. We find him in Corinth. And verse 2 tells us that he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy, and his wife Priscilla. Why? Because Claudius had commanded all the Jews leave Rome. So he finds somebody right away. Timothy and Silas are in Macedonia. Paul's along, he's fearful, he's weary. And then he runs into this husband and wife, Aquila and Priscilla. Now, interestingly, later, uh, uh, Priscilla will be mentioned first, more often than than Aquila. We don't really know why that is. Maybe it's because she was prominent in the woman world, a well-to-do family. That may be the case. We don't really know. But that's just a little side note there, an interesting thought. We're not really sure what's going on there. But what we do know here is that uh, their natives are Pontius, and that's Close to where Paul was from. So they're from the same region. Now, um, they're both. They're, they're, we don't know about Aquila for sure. Or, or excuse me, Priscilla for sure. She may be Roman. She may have been from Rome. But we do know that they're Jews. They're all Jews. So they have that in common. So they have a little uh, uh, commonality here. He meets people that he has some, something in, in common with them. And they're from the same region, which which helps kind of build up the relationship here. And we know that Paul loved them. He he speaks of them often later in his letters. He writes often about um, Aquila and Priscilla. So they were wonderful friends to him. God sends him companions. And also there we find in verse three that he came to them and he did so because they were the same trade. And he stayed with them. (laughs) And they were working for by trade, they were tent makers. Now, the little term there is leather workers. And so, again, with tent making, there's an element of leather workers working. But this is part of the reason of, of Cilicia where, where these folks were, were surrounded with a commonality of tent making. So it was a common trade there or leather working and the parts of that that might include uh, tent making. So this is a, they had this in common. Paul had this as a background. Again, it was not uncommon for rabbis to have a trade as a background. This was native to his, to his upbringing, and Paul was able to find with them uh, some work to support himself because he was in financial need. Now he's worked his way all the way down out of Athens. There's no church there that we can speak of, and there's no monetary support that's following him now. He's gone too far south. Uh, uh, his brethren are left in the Macedonia, and he's running out of funds. So he's able now to support himself and still continue on with his ministry. And he's able to support himself with folks that he can relate to, that he has something in common with. And they ultimately have a wonderful bond, a wonderful friendship emerges out of this. And there's the kindness of God and his providential care for Paul here in this area that we see, this, this area of his life, this moment of his life, that we see him, he just uh, God gives him some friends. And they are lifelong, wonderful friends in the faith that had much to do with his ministry. Now, there's question uh, of whether they were Christians before they met Paul or if they were uh, converted under Paul's ministry. Scripture doesn't tell us. My thought is that they were they were Christians already. Uh, there was certainly a church in Rome already. There's much evidence to that. And Paul never mentions them being converted Under his ministry, and he mentions lots about people being converted under his ministry. That doesn't prove things, but it is an indication. So my thought is that they were Christians already. That's just something that we can ponder. It's never really given to us. But what we do know is that God moves to encourage Paul here. And he does so so first by giving him some friends, some companions. And with that comes some employment which Paul needed both. So it's very practical and it's very tender and loving of our God here. And God, our God is a God of comfort, is he not? He's a God of comfort. And here he is comforting his servant, Paul. John 16, 33, Christ says this to us, in the world you will have tribulation. And Paul's certainly aware of that at this point in time. He goes on, he says, take courage. I have overcome the world. Philippians 419, we know it well. God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So our God is a God of comfort. And here we see the Apostle Paul being comforted. Uh, I'll, I'll take a moment here just to tell you a little funny story that happened that's, uh, that happened to us while we were on vacation. And we missed y'all immensely, but we did have a wonderful time away. It was a good vacation. It's good to be back. So, part of our vacation, part of our our planning was to, uh, uh, towards the end of our our fishing trip, we were going to leave the location we were staying in. We're going to transfer all our stuff. We were going to move to another, uh, move out and do a few other things in another place. Part of that was moving, uh, traveling from South Carolina into North Carolina, traveling from uh, Cherry Grove into Wilmington. And so our first leg was to stop at the USS North Carolina and, and uh, take a little tour there. So we packed up quickly that morning and we packed a lot of things in the little white trash bags. We just poured ourselves little white trash bags and piled them up uh, around the floor. And we were gathering things up, trying to rush to hurry to be able to get uh, to the USS North Carolina and take a little trip and enjoy that and do it in a timely manner. So as we get there, we're about to go into the tour and they're giving us instructions. Say, look at my wife. And uh, the gentleman says, she, and she had like uh, flip flops on. And the gentleman said, you know, it's pretty slick up there. There's some, there's some tough places. It'd be better if you had tennis shoes. Do you have any tennis shoes? Say, oh yes, I do. I'll just go out and change quickly. So she goes out. Her wedding comes back in a few moments. She comes in and she says, uh, no tennis shoes. Did you pack the tennis shoes? Did you pack the bag of shoes? And I said. Um, I don't recall packing the bag of shoes. I don't know. (laughs) And she says they were sitting right by the two bags of trash. And I said, uh, oh, the the one big bag of trash that kind of heavy and felt like it might have a lot of shoes in it. Yeah, that's in the dumpster. Um, Oh, my goodness. So um, we travel back an hour and a half now back. And I'm climbing because I I can't remember which dumpster I put them in. And I'm climbing through all the dumpsters. Try to fish out all of our footwear, and I found, by okay. the mercies of God, uh, and I was and my footwear that I had on at the time was now ruined because it was uh, icky and gooey and nasty and all the dumpsters you can imagine. But had the man not made that one little statement to tell my wife, you know, maybe things should be better, we would never know. Him. We so God was just merciful to us in his providential care of that little moment, uh, which is just a funny little story that, that tells in compare, comparison to Paul here and his ministry and us in our ministry. But his providential care for us is so wonderful and kind in so many ways and such a blessing. And so uh, here are these Jews out of the diaspora here, and they're from other parts of the world now, um, And they've been brought together and they have this commonality. And again, it it mentions there that Claudius has uh, commanded that the Jews leave Rome there. So let me just speak to that for a moment. Uh, Aquila and Priscilla are part of that. They're they're Jews there now. Um, they They were living in Rome at that time and they were sent out. And this probably happened as referring to A.D. 49. When there was a, a resistance there, a Jewish resistance, and Claudius just got uh, fed up with it and kicked them all out. And so it's probably uh, A.D. 51 here when they're gathered in Corinth around that time. It's close, so that gives you a time frame. And they've been kicked out because Claudius was tired of the uprisings. And again, all the providential working of God. And now they've been brought together. This wonderful friendship uh, is ignited here, and we see the beautiful reality of them working together in unison. And it says there in verse four, now Paul was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. He was reasoning every Sabbath because he was, what? Working during the week. So now he's a tent maker. Again, leather worker, it it could, it could denote a number of things. But what we do know is that he's able to continue his missionary effort. And and he's able to do that because he's able to provide for himself. And ultimately, God provided all of the circumstances for that to take place. So then the question comes up, well, well, was the work not a waste of time? No, it's not. When there needs to be a time of tent making, you make tents. It's not a waste of time. He would pay the price to give himself to the Corinthians, and there's something to be said for that. It's just not a waste of time. And actually, in a practical sense, for us, it might be good to to just ponder the the benefit of learning a trade. It may be encouraging our kids in the same way. That's just a little practical side note there. But certainly, it's not a waste of time, and it was beneficial for Paul. When there's time, when there's a time that's necessary to make tents, be a tent maker, you're a tent maker. Now, as a church, to support uh, the pastors, yes, we know that. As there are seasons where there is necessity of tent making, there are in ministry. And we trust, we, we, we tent make, and we trust God to, to uh, establish and confirm and validate the ministry. That's what you do. So it's never a waste of time. And the circumstantial elements here allowing Paul to continue in his ministry there in Corinth flow from the providential kindness of God through a servant. It's just beautiful to take a look at that. It's wonderful to see. So something I wanted to to just bring to your attention by way of application as we think through this in context and in sequence in his in a historical setting. The diaspora there um, is also used as a providence and uh, the providence of God for His own good pleasure for his purposes so uh, just a reminder there now we're finding these these jews here that are brought together to uh, facilitate paul's ministry there when he's alone there in corinth initially it's brought about by the diaspora which was brought about by god judging israel a number of times in the past And so the judgment of God on national Israel now leads us to this setting, this historical setting where we we find these synagogues spread all throughout the known world and they become a hub now through which the gospel of Jesus Christ is introduced to the Jews and the Gentiles. Again, the Jews being light to the Gentile world the Jews being a means through which God will reach the Gentiles. So it's just a beautiful picture here. And it all stems from the judgment, really, of the nation of Israel. That becomes a springboard for the gospel to be spread throughout the nations. So for us, when we think about this, here's a simple thought of application. Hardships are for our good. This is a hardship of Paul's life. It's not a, he's not at a happy place in his apostolic endeavors. And God meets him right where he is and uses the hardship for his good. It's the sovereignty of God working for his saving purposes and for our good when we have the hardships in ministry. When we have the hardships in the Christian life. They're always going to come, are they not? The Christian life is full of hardships. You're going to labor for the Lord, and you're not going to be uh, appreciated by man. And you have to deal with it. You're going to have good intentions to honor God and some, some uh, ministry endeavor, and you're going to be perceived wrongly. And you may be accused of things that you had no intention of. You may be accused of things that you didn't do. You're going to be, going to be uh, accused by a hostile world that's opposed to the gospel. The Christian life is full of tribulation. The Christian life is full of hardships. Understand, all of it is ultimately for our good and for God's purposes in salvation. God is working these things out providentially. He will meet you right where you are and he will care for you and he will minister for you and he will do so very vividly and poignantly just when you need it the providence of pain and loneliness and fear are for our good and god will meet you right there and he will minister to your needs well that brings us to the good report look we'll there in verse five uh through eight at the good report but when silas and timothy came down from macedonia paul began devoting himself completely to the word solemnly testifying the Jews, that Jesus was the Christ. Well, let's hold there for a moment. We need to take a moment here and kind of try to piece some things together so we can see what's happening in context here, because now Timothy and Silas do meet Paul. They meet him here in Corinth, so they come back. Now, this brings Paul great joy. There's a couple of things that we want to piece together here uh, so we can see the good news and the great joy. There's two things that, that happens when they come back. Certainly, this, he, he has the friendship of, of Aquila and Priscilla that's been wonderful, and has provided a means for him to, to continue his ministry. He has financial uh, uh, means now. But now his co-laborers in the missionary endeavor are back. That in itself is wonderful, but they're back with good news, and they're back with practical application to the ministry, which is finance. So I'm going to kind of put this together for you and then we're going to take you to a couple of scriptures that shed some light on it so we can see what happened. Now, question, did Timothy and Silas meet Paul in Athens because he told them to? He did. They did. They were there. Now, we'll we'll find that and try to trace that back. So they were there. They did come to Athens and when they came to Athens, then Paul instructed them to go back to Macedonia. So they were to meet him in Athens. They came there and he sent them back. Now, when he did, he sent Timothy back to Thessalonica because he was concerned about them. So he sends him back, minister there because we left in a haste, it was not good. And his heart is anguishing over what might be going on with, that, with the Christians uh, there in that small church in Thessalonica. And he sends... Um, then he sends Silas back to meet up with Luke and Philippi. And ultimately, Silas will bring back financial means from Philippi. And then Timothy will bring back good report of the spiritual well-being of the church there at Thessalonica. Both will bring great joy to Paul's heart because he was anguishing over that reality. Now, let's look at a couple of verses to put this together for us, okay? So, what the good, the thing that brings joy to his heart? Well, we got some financial support, so that helps, and also we get, more importantly, wonderful report back about the spiritual health of the Thessalonians. So, look at me first there in, Thess- in Thessalonians three one through two. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best. To be left behind at Athens—that's Paul refer- alone. That's Paul referring to himself. We sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith. So Timothy's back in Macedonia, encouraging the Thessalonians. First uh, Thessalonians three six to eight. Now here's the joy. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. For this reason, brethren, I, <clears throat> in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live, but you stand firm in the Lord. Now you see that? He was comforted how? In his distress and affliction. That's, 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 the, the, that's the emotion that he's living in there in Corinth. And then he gets this good news about their faith. He's comforted by their faith. And he's now alive because he knows that they stand firm in the Lord. Meanwhile, Silas is back in, uh, uh, in Philippi with Luke. and He's going to bring the financial support. Now, look over there in verse 5. OK, it says when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word. Now, how did he do that? Before it was only in the synagogue, right? And when was he meeting in the synagogue? That's only on the Sabbath, isn't it? But now he's able to devote himself completely to the word. And there's a reason for that. Philippians four fifteen. Use you yourselves to know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, After I left left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving, receiving, but you alone. No one shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. So the Philippian church is a church that supported him financially. And now we find him able to dedicate himself fully to his ministry. And there's a reason for that because Silas has come back and Silas has come back with an offering from the Philippian church. 2 Corinthians eleven nine. And when I was present with you, now he's writing back to the Corinthians. Now, when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. But when the brethren came from Macedonia, now who are the brethren from Macedonia? Well, that's Timothy and Silas. When they came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need in everything and I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. So his heart is filled up with joy about the Thessalonians and also he has a practical means of now ministering full time and not worrying about being a tent maker because now he has support from Philippi brought back with, uh, uh, from, from Silas there and good news brought back about the Thessalonians from Timothy. So what do we take from that? Well, we can help God's people in both ways. When we have good news, when we give good report, when we have good things to say, it can be extremely encouraging to our brothers and sisters. We need to share it. We need to be able to uh, uh, have that on the forefront of our mind, just those encouraging words, encouraging words for, for aspects of their ministry, what they've been involved in, or what God is doing, that they've been praying for. There's things that we know that, that, that we can share with one another. That's good news about God's work among us. We need to do so. And also, we need to exercise the gift of giving, right? Man, when you can give to enable ministry of God, ministry of God's service, do so. Suddenly so we know that we, we give to the ministry of, uh, of our elders, we give to the ministry of, of, of the church to... to to care for our elders. We know that. There's other opportunities. There's other opportunities to give financially, to service of the Lord um, that that God has called in other places. And and part of a a very practical part of that, and that we need to be wise about and and diligent in doing so, is to give um, financially and exercise the gift of giving. Now Paul's able to give himself full-time ministry. But you know something? When Paul's able to give himself to full-time ministry. What does that usually do for him? It brings him a lot of trouble, doesn't it? It brings him trouble. So here we go. Now he's, he's there in the synagogue, man, but he's, he's, now he's just full-time. He's at, it, he's at it wide open. He doesn't have to worry about tent making anymore. And what happens here? Verse 6. So he's testifying to Jews there in the synagogue that uh, Christ that Jesus is the Christ and then in verse 6 it says but when they resisted and blasphemed he shook out his garment and said to them your blood be upon your own heads I am clean from now on I will go to the Gentiles Wow so Paul rejected these unbelieving Jews they're in the Gentile or they're, they're in the synagogue he rejects them so this shaking out of his garment that's um, a very visual demonstration of him saying, you know, I have contempt for your blasphemy, and I'm done. Now again, don't take this in the, in the grander sense terms of his ministry to the Jews. His heart was always broken of the lostness of Jews, and so he continues to do that. He's talking about this moment for those who have blasphemed right there in the synagogue and know this he's just going next door right we talked about that before he's just going next door the church is gonna they're gonna start up a little church in just his house it's right next door to the synagogue and so you know there's plenty of opportunity for those jewish folks to just kind of pass right on into the church on their way to the synagogue the door is open but there is a number here among the Jewish leaders that have blasphemed the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's time for that severe warning. Judgment's coming. For now, the prophet's not coming to you anymore. It doesn't mean the door of the church is closed. The prophet's not coming to you anymore. You have shut yourself off from the prophet of God. And so there is a severe warning here. They've rejected truth and judgment will come. That's a warning we must carry. That's a warning that we must take to heart. But also know this. He goes on and says, your blood is on your own heads. I am clean. And what does he mean there? What's he saying? Well, he's certainly warning them of judgment to come. He's saying that, you know, the gospel has been, Communicated to you clearly. I've clearly communicated the gospel to you. I've given, uh, uh, I've, I've done what I am, what's required of me. Now it's on your head. I am clean. So that goes both ways. Certainly, there's the clear warning of judgment to come. You've blasphemed God, you've rejected the truth, you've heard it clearly, and now I'm moving. And that's on you. But the flip side of that, we also need to heed the warning. There's a warning here for us. And so here, let me, let me bring it to you in a question. Are you clean? That's what, that's what we have to give an account for as well. Are we clean? Are there situations in your life, are there circumstances in your life, are there relationships in your life where you know you need to speak the gospel clearly to someone? Or a number of people. I'm thinking of the hard time or the hard issues like family relationships, co-workers, whatever the case may be. But are you clean? Are there those circumstances in your life where you know that you should speak the gospel, that you need to speak the gospel, and it's just not happened? That's what we have to reckon with here And this as well. Ezekiel 33:8. The Lord speaking, when I said to the wicked, oh, wicked man, you will surely die and you do not speak to warn the wicked of his way. That wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will be required from your hand. Now, these are unique situations here. So I don't want to push this too far. I want us to feel the the weight of the warning though. Ezekiel is in the role of a prophet. That's unique. Paul is in the role of, of... Apostle of Christ, that's unique. So let's hold, let's hold that in context. But there's warning here for us that's healthy to think through. We are commanded as well to speak the word of life, and that should sober us. And The Spirit of God is faithful at quickening us to that reality and relationships and circumstances of life. And we want to be able to, like Paul, say, "I'm clean." Verse seven. Then he left there and went to a house of a man named Padius Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. And there it is. So his house is right there. The door is not shut completely to the Jewish people there. There's been the solemn warning. There's been the rejection. There's been uh, the the, uh, removal of the prophet from the synagogue. But here's this beautiful uh, reality of God's kindness and his providential care. The church is set up right next door. And then it gets even better in verse eight. Crispus, who is the leader of the synagogue, believed. He believed in the Lord with all his household. So now you've got the synagogue leader and all his household, and that would include family and servants, and that could, be a, that could be a large number of people. All of them now believe, and they're right there. They're going to church right next to the synagogue, so the folks can't get away from it. And that was the, little, that was the spark. Because after that, kind of, now there's a wave of converts that come in, and it says there that many. Many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. So many now are coming to Christ as a result of now uh, 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 Christ winning or, or, or Christ bringing to faith the leader of the synagogue through Paul's ministry. And so we're to trust in God's providence and building and blessing our church and our ministry We give him the glory, just as he is building the church here in Corinth. The blessing brought through Paul was brought to him through his fear. You know why? Because the blessing that Paul had experienced in ministry was always followed by persecution. So now we now we see the blessing in Corinth. Now we see this wonderful reality of Paul's ministry uh, uh, exploding there in Corinth. We have the leader of the synagogue being brought to faith in Christ. And we have many Corinthians coming, Jew and Gentile. We have his fellow co-workers there coming with good news about the Thessalonian church and uh, monetary means to help him now uh, be able to minister full time, not be weighted down with, the, with his, with the, with his uh, earthly needs. But such blessing was always followed by persecution in the past. That's his experience on his missionary endeavor. And that brings us finally to the faithful compassion. So there in verse nine, the Lord knows full well that even in the midst of this wonderful blessing, Paul is frightened. Now he comes there weary. He comes there struggling. And God meets him in the circumstances. And the ministry uh, receives all these blessings. And now we see a church emerging, beginning to emerge there in Corinth. But, what resonates in Paul's heart as a result of all this is fear. Why? I mean that's wonderful news, right? This is it's going well, right? Too well. Too well. Yes. Every time this begins to happen, Paul gets persecuted. And Paul, you know, Paul's human. We look at him, we sometimes we think of him he's like this 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 superhuman uh uh Guy that, this, that has no fear, that has no emotion, that feels no pain. The man felt pain. The man dreaded the beatings. He dreaded what might come again as a result of the blessing. And so he's fearful. He's tired of being hurt. He's tired of being beaten for the gospel's sake. And the Lord knows this. And so there in verse nine, see the faithful compassion. The Lord said to Paul in the night by vision, do not be afraid any longer, but go and speak and do not be silent. Verse 10, for I am with you and no man will attack you in order to harm you. For I have many people in this city. And verse 11 tells us that he settled down there and he managed there for a lengthy time, a year and six months. Now, the the tender compassion of our Lord comes here in the vision. So he tells him what to do, he instructs him. And then in verse 10, he says, I am with you. I'm with you. He lets him know up front. You know, nobody's going to hurt you here. Now, there's no, hey, there's no promises beyond that. But he finds him when he's at that moment where he just can't deal with the thought of it. He's done. And he says, look, nobody's going to harm you here. You're going to settle down here and you're going to preach and you're going to teach. And you're going to see a church, a healthy church brought up here. I'm with you. You're going to be safe here. Now for us, it's a good chance for us to kind of see the humanness of Paul and be able to apply it to our lives as well. Because we think of Paul sometimes as as that, you know, or, or maybe a number of the heroes of the faith. You know, they're just different. And Paul was there's there's you know, there's one guy, one guy that was set apart in all of Christian for the role that Paul was, that Paul has. He's, he's a unique guy. There's no doubt about it. He's unique and amongst mankind and, the, and the, the, the way that matters most according to the kingdom of God. But think about it. He walks into Corinth and there's no fanfare. There's no parade. He goes there alone, And he's hurting. And he's discouraged. And he's sad. And he's frightened. And then he sees a great blessing. And he's still frightened. He's human. And What I want you to see is that he has frailties and weaknesses just like us. Just like us. So all our heroes of the faith are weak and frail. Just like Us. Now, can we put the application there a little better? Paul's, in some ways, just like us. So let the Lord's encouragement and compassion for Paul comfort you. The promises in the Bible, the mercies of God, Are for us as well. All the promises that we see in the Bible, all the mercies of God that we see extended to Paul and others, are the same mercies and same promises that are extended to us. Paul had needs, and the Lord was sensitive to those needs. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that encouraging? Isn't that glorious? Because we think of Paul and all his great ministry, but it's hard to think of his needs. It's hard to think of his fears. It's hard to think of his doubts. But he had them. And when he had them, the Lord met him. Because isn't that where we go? Isn't that where we are? You know, that's what we, that's what we think about more than the, the great ministry that might come about, that we might have some part in. We think of the moment-by-moment the moment fear and doubt and dread. And am I clean? And no, I'm not. And yet I'm still fearful of doing what's required of me, commanded of me, so that I might be clean. That's what we think about. But it's in those moments that God meets us just like he meets Paul. And he's sensitive to our needs, just like he was sensitive to the needs of Paul. That's the deep compassion of our Savior. Same Savior that had deep compassion for this tremendous missionary. It's the tenderness of our Lord. So know it and embrace it. The same God that ministered to Paul in his weakness is the same God that ministers to you and your weakness with the same tenderness, the same sovereign compassion. Know it and embrace it. And Mark there that he did say, that he did tell him also, I have many people in this city. Now that's God's elect. That's the sovereignly chosen ones of God. They're not yet saved, but they're about to be saved. How about that? This, this brings great comfort to Paul and it should bring great comfort to us. God knows and directs the salvation of his people. He let them know up front. I have many people that are going to in space and time come to faith under your ministry here in Corinth. They're my elect people. They've been called out by my sovereign grace before the foundation of the world. They've been given to me as a love gift from the Father in eternity past. And now that love gift is going to come to fruition in space and time under your ministry. How glorious is that? So they're given to Christ before they're called by grace. And he tells them this is before their conversion, before the effectual call. He speaks of those yet to be called. Christ knew them and he knew that they would be converted. Now this is the foreknowledge of God and he just lays that out for Paul. So this promise encouraged Paul greatly and it should encourage us as well. It's the sovereignty of God in salvation. That's what we're seeing here. This is the sovereignty of God in salvation. But I want you to note something here. Notice what is necessary here. It's necessary for the elect to hear the gospel, right? To hear the gospel and respond to the gospel. So what does he not tell Paul? Oh, I have many in the city that are mine. They belong to me. They're coming to faith. So you can just mosey along, Paul. Don't worry about it. Don't be afraid. You're not even going to have to minister here. You're not in danger. No one's going to oppose you. You can just leave. I've already called many here. No. No you stay here and you preach the gospel because I have many of my people yet to be, uh, to be called to repentance and faith and to repent and believe on Christ as a result of that call that is yet to come under your ministry, Paul. He's instructed to preach to the elect that they will be saved. Now, so are you. Isn't that encouraging? You're encouraged to carry, you're commanded to go forth and carry the gospel in your context and preach the gospel to all mankind knowing that there is an lift of God. And that's exactly what Paul did. That's exactly what we should do. He settled in there. He trusted in God's promises and God kept his promise. And we talked about that this morning in our morning Bible study. God gave His promises to Paul, and then He kept them. And He gives His promises to us, and He will keep them. No one attacked Paul. Now we're going to see coming up there was a tent. It, it got a little, it got a little uh, uh, tight there for a while. But God made a promise to Paul, and nobody touched him. Nobody laid a hand on him in Corinth. God built him up there and nourished him and strengthened him just when he needed it. So for us, here's the great encouragement: believe in God's promises. That's what we see here from Paul. And like Paul, we too should believe in God's promises. Know and trust the power of God. Was that? There in Mark 12, uh, these Sadducees come, um, uh, come to Christ and they're, they're concerning the resurrection. And so they're opposed. They don't believe in the resurrection. And so they're going to try to tra- trap him with this riddle you know about uh, who will be mar- who will be married who will, who will we be married with uh, in glory? Number of men married number of brothers marrying the same wife after one had died, uh, which was keeping up with the law given by Moses to care for their to care care for her children and her family to give them provision, and so they come with this with this little uh, try to trick him with this little riddle. You know, well which one's going to be the husband? You know, if there's this resurrection, and so. Uh Christ doesn't even he doesn't even fool with them. He doesn't even bother with them. He just says, you don't know the scripture and you don't know the power of God. Isn't that great? Don't we need that? Don't we need that right here when we're trusting the promises of God? Because he doesn't go like and, and, and respond the way that we so often respond. Well, you know, that's an excellent thought. You know, there's probably some approaches uh concerning that that might be interesting to um, to, to delve into and ponder. And, uh, you know, there's, there's several angles that we could come at in a question like that. So that's thoughtful. That's, that's some good insight. I, I can see where you're coming from. And they say, you're wrong. You don't even know the scripture. And you know the power of God. Now, that's where you stand when you stand on the promises of God. The scripture's true. And the power of God is true. And the philosophies of man are foolish in comparison. Paul knew the power of God and God met him right in his anguish and saw him through. And we, like Paul, must know the power of God and the truth of Scripture that we, too, can trust him. He is the God of all creation. You are children of the God of all creation. You're commissioned from the kingdom of God to go forth and carry his gospel, trusting that he will bring about uh The glorification of his great name, the salvation of his people, his elect, that he has called and commanded to himself. And you are a means of carrying forth the gospel truth to see that to its end. Go and trust his promises. He promises his promises are true and forever. Amen. Go and live by faith. Live by faith. Live by faith in your God who keeps his promises let's pray gracious father we thank you for your kind providence in our lives we thank you for your tender mercies we thank you for your personal touch we thank you for your promises that are true and amen we thank you for the privilege we have to encourage one another support one another and do so knowing that ultimately our hope and our trust is in you and you alone we ask that you would help us to trust your promises the truth of your word the power of you our God that we might know you more fully and that we might be faithful servants to your glory and to our good we ask it in the name of Christ. Amen.